Good morning to you. Today we are in 1 Samuel 5. 1 Samuel 5 and Houston, we have a problem. The Philistines have a misunderstanding regarding their standing. God had permitted His own people to be defeated and His own ark to be captured. But the Philistines made grave miscalculations about this situation. You see, after slaying 34,000 Hebrew soldiers and capturing the ark of God, they wrongly concluded that their god, Dagon, was greater than the one true God. But their greatest battlefield spoil was about to spoil them. The ark was no trophy to be trifled with. God Almighty was about to bring on them trouble and trauma and tribulation. And in 12 short verses today, their pride will be despised and it will be the source of their demise misunderstanding their standing will maximize their problems, it will agonize their bodies, and it will terrorize many unto their graves. And so with that in mind, if you would turn with me in the Word of the Lord to 1 Samuel 5, and as we turn to the the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time in His text today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that these 12 verses that are living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, these words that will never return void, that Thy Word would speak to us, that You would inculcate us in the Word of God, that we would come away with lessons that we can apply immediately. We invite Your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to convict us, to challenge us, to exhort us, to encourage us. We ask that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind for the time that we're investing in the Word of God this morning. Holy Spirit, please take Your Holy Word and make us a holy people. Help us not misunderstand where we stand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, the Word of God says, uh, we'll be using the NIV today. I built this in Zimbabwe, and, and they may mostly have access to the NIV, so that's what today's text is. Apologies for the ESV conversion. It says Zimbabwe. Uh, The Bible says, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now remember that. And then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple, and they set it beside Dagon. Now when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon, and they put him back up on his place. But the, but, excuse me, they took Dagon, they put it back in his place, verse 4. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time his head and his hands had broken off and were lying on the threshold and only his body remained on the pedestal. And that is why this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on that threshold. Verse 6, and the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, and he brought devastation upon them and affliction upon them with tumors. And when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. 
And so they called together all the other rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And the other rulers answered, they have, or have the ark of, of the God of Israel moved to Gath. And so they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they moved it, the Lord's hand was heavy against that city, Gath, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of that city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. And so they sent the ark on to Ekron. And as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send back the ark of Israel, send it away, let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. All right, so now verse 1 tells us the Philistines had captured the ark of God, and they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, who were the Philistines? Good question. They were Israel's principal enemy from the latter days of Judges all the way through the early period of the monarchy. The Philistines are mentioned 150 times just in First and Second Samuel. The Philistines were originally a sea people. Um, Amos 9.7 tells us that these sea people came from what we call today the island of Crete near modern Greece. Extra-biblical literature tells us that these Minoan migrant marauders, these maritime marauders, they first fought Pharaoh Ramses III, but the Egyptians were able to repel them and expel them. And so the Philistines went a little further east and they started to colonize the, the coastal plain of southern Canaan along the Mediterranean. And so what you have on a timepiece is you have the, the Philistines settling in western Israel at roughly the exact same time that God's people are coming in to Israel from the east. And so a natural and inevitable conflict is going to ensue. And it does. The Bible also mentions, however, Philistines interacting with people like Abraham and Isaac back in the book of Genesis. But those Philistines are either a very early migration or many think a different group altogether. Because in the book of Genesis, the Philistines have one king, and he's at a town called Gerar. But all through Judges, all through Samuel, our Philistines today, they have five chief cities, which formed a pentapolis. They were Ashdod and Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. Now, our Philistines, in our story, they are a fierce fearsome warrior people. They quickly conquered the existing Hittite and Amorite kingdoms that were already there. And what made the Philistines so formidable in battle was their pioneering use of iron. They figured out how to use iron. Now, before the Iron Age was the Bronze Age. Okay? Now, here's the problem. A Bronze Age sword is softer than a harder iron counterpart. And so if you go to battle and you have iron swords and they have bronze swords, in a long battle, their swords will begin breaking and yours 
will stand strong. Number two, iron is super abundant. It's one of the more prolific of the world's resources. And bronze swords need tin, which is relatively rare. So you can make a lot more iron swords than you could ever hope to make bronze swords. But the main reason that these people were so amazingly powerful militarily is the big advantage iron afforded them to fabricate and integrate powerful chariots into their army. Chariots were basically the tanks of the ancient world. And since the Philistines settled where? They settled on the coastal plain, right? And so they were able to monopolize mobile warfare and push the Israelites who were in the east almost exclusively to the hill country where chariots couldn't easily go. And the Israelites were promised all this land, but it took a long time for them to come down from their high places to take the coastal cities, right? So the Philistines were the greatest threat uh, to the Israelites in the days of Samson and Samuel and Saul and David until David ultimately defeats them in uh, 2 Samuel 5. Now verse 1 tells us that after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer, which is where they seized it after the battle. They took it to one of their cities. They took it to Ashdod. So where is Ashdod, and why would you take the ark there? Good question. You guys ask great questions. So uh, Ashdod was not the closest Philistine city. So they could have taken it somewhere quicker. They deliberately took it somewhere farther, if you look at a map. They, they took it... Uh, to Ashdod, which was part of the land that had been assigned by God to Israel, to specifically the tribe of Judah. But until the days of David, they were never able to claim that land. So why would you drag the ark about 30 miles southwest from Ebenezer to Ashdod? Well, Ashdod was the Philistines' most secure city because it was protected by the Mediterranean on the west and their four other fortified cities to the north, to the east, and to the south, if you look at a map. But that wasn't the primary reason. The primary reason the Philistines took the Ark of God, the God of Israel, who's really the God of everybody, he took that and he took that to a place, he took the Ark to Ashdod because they were making a theological statement. For at Ashdod, the Philistines had the great temple of their chief god, Dagon. Verse 1, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then they carried it into Dagon's temple. And they set it beside Dagon. Do you see the statement they're making? Alright, so who's Dagon? Dagon was the adopted god of the Philistines. This wasn't their original god. This is the god that they now had adopted. He's one of the many gods that the Philistines worshipped, but he was the chief god that they worshipped. When these Minoan marauders subjugated the local coastal peoples, they also migrated from the gods they had back in Crete, because back in Crete you needed a god who could grow grapes and olives. That's what grows in Crete. So that's how they worship. But now they've landed to a new place and they need a new god who could supposedly bring rain and grain to the plains of Canaan. And Dagon fit that bill. So, Dagon, who is he? He's sort of a merman. Um, he has the head and hands of a human, but he has the body of a fish. You with me? 
Okay. Uh, he has this large sweeping tail that sits on the pedestal, and above it you start going from fish to man, particularly the head and the hands. Now the Philistines, they took on other gods alongside Dagon. Um, they took on Ashtoreth and Baal, who were also local deities in Canaan. And the reason they made Dagon their chief god is because they learned from those they conquered that supposedly Dagon was the father of Asherah and Baal. And so they thought, hey, if this is our new god's dad of the other gods we need to bring rain, we'll make dad our chief god and we'll get all the rain we need. You see how that works out? It kind of makes sense uh, if you're sort of doing pagan religion math. Which brings us to our first point today, under the topic of misunderstanding our standing. Misunderstanding our standing, and our first point today is this, are our gods adopted and adapted for the things we want? Or is our God really the one true God, and then we must do what He wants? I'll say that again. Are our gods adopted and adapted for the things we want? Or is our God really the one true God, and if so, we must do what He wants? The Philistines adopted and adapted their worship to the way they wanted. They were a sea people. So their god was half man and half fish. <laughs> they needed grain on the plains, so they adopted the grain god. You see how they're adapting and adopting to what they want? They needed help locally, geographically, so they adopted the gods who were supposedly specific to that location. Now, their religion was to adopt and adapt whatever. So long is that God could produce the goods. They were pragmatists in their religion. Now, before we get too high and mighty, are we really that different? And we may not bow to gods of stone, but we often believe, we often live our life, like if we pursue certain things with the kind of focus that should only belong to Jesus, we're going to be happy. We chase after those other things. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, some people pursue fame. Some pursue fitness. Some pursue finances with the zeal that would put most ancient idol worshipers to shame. We think if we were just pretty or we were just thin, then we would be happy. Or if we were just richer, then we'd be happy. Or if we just climbed the ladder and, and got a doctorate, then we would be happy. And, and this treadmill often leaves us with a very raw deal. It works like this. Let, let's say sports is your idol. Fairly neutral, right? Okay, so let's make sports this person's idol. And we begin to believe, you know, if I just made the team, I'd be happy. But then we get on the team and... Not as happy as we thought we'd be. So we think, you know the problem here, I need to get on the first team or the varsity team. If I just did that, I'd be happy. Then you work and you train and you push the other guy out and you get there and you're on the varsity team and you're there and you're still not as happy as you thought you'd be. So you think, here's the problem, I need to be on the professional team. If I could just go pro, all of my dreams would be fulfilled. And you struggle and you push and you strive and something 
how you actually get there, and you get to the pro team, and then you find out you still yearn for more. And you say, here's the problem. I need to be on the professional team, and we need to win the championship. And if somehow you make it, and most don't, if somehow you make it and you win that championship, the moment after you achieve it and the last bit of confetti falls, after you wipe the last bit of champagne from your eye, in that wonderful moment, it begins to leak away. And next year, that same team has to prove itself all over again. So as we run ourselves ragged, the question is, are we misunderstanding our standing? Are our gods adopted and adapted for the things we want, or is our God the one true God, in which case we must do what He wants? If God is God, then we owe Him our allegiance. It is never the other way around. And that brings us to our second point today. Our second point today is this. God is perfectly capable of defending His honor in whatever endeavor. God is perfectly capable of defending His honor in whatever endeavor. In the ancient world, it was common practice for the victorious army to carry off the gods and goods of the person they vanquished. And they would take the gods in particular and they would set them up in their temple to show that their god is greater than the god who was conquered. You follow? Sort of the ultimate schoolyard talent, right? My dad's bigger than your dad or whatever, right? But this time in deity form. It's saying, we are superior and you are subjugated. It was understood in the ancient world that a people whose gods were in the hands of the enemy were a people that were completely conquered. And so the Philistines brought the Ark of God to Dagon's temple in Ashdod. Now, Dagon is, is up high on a special pedestal in his temple. And over here is the ark, and it is placed on the floor as his, at his feet, as it were, except his is a tail. Right? You see the imagery? You're working with me? Okay. Uh, they haven't made a Marvel movie on this, so I'm not sure if you can follow, but work with me, okay? So, so clearly, the Philistine understanding is that Dagon is the victor, and the Lord is his prisoner. But they were misunderstanding their standing. Because point two is true. God is perfectly capable of defending His honor in whatever endeavor. Verse 1, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They carried the ark into Dagon's temple. They set it beside Dagon. Now here it is. When the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon, but where was he? He had fallen on his face on the ground specifically before the ark of the Lord. Friends, Dagon cannot stand before the Lord, can he? Dagon is face down on the ground as though he is not only laid low, but it looks like he's bowing before the one true God. In his own temple, Dagon is worshiping the one true God. How embarrassing. <laughs> What's a good pagan to do? <laughs> so they come in, hey, let's go see Dagon. We took, whoa, <laughs> that's never happened before. And they go, let's just kind of forget this happened. And they set him back up in place. Strong wind blew through. That's the story. You got strong wind. 
My friend, if your gods need you to prop it up, to prop him up, perhaps you have the wrong god. Let's apply this principle to our modern idols. Do we have to keep propping our modern idols up? Did you ever notice that uh, people that lean on modern idols are constantly having to prop them up? Um, Someone whose God is greed is never satisfied. They always have to prop that God up. Greed is like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Some of you are familiar with John D. Rockefeller, and when he was one of the world's richest men, he was supposedly asked by a reporter, how much money, Mr. Rockefeller, is enough? And his answer was supposedly, just a little bit more. You see? Even the supermodel, who, who looks to her looks for her standing, she's left weirdly worrying, if only my left eyebrow was just a little fuller, Right? Like everybody else is like, you're a supermodel. She's like, my left eyebrow, I don't look good. Let's airbrush that. Because these, these false gods need to be held up because they can't stand on their own. No one else is noticing what the model is obsessing, but false gods constantly have a need to be propped up. And yet the one true God, well, he was perfectly capable of defending his honor in whatever endeavor. Verse 3, so they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and now there's a little difference. And his head and his hands had been broken off, and they were lying on the threshold. So you have to enter the temple, you have to walk over the... You can't get into Dagon's temple and Seth's going, oh look, he's beheaded and has no hands. Welcome to Dagon's temple. This all-powerful God with no head and no hands who's fallen down to worship God again. So, day two, problem two. Notice Dagon doesn't fall to the left or to the right. He always falls directly in front of the Lord and the ark. It's a big temple, but doggone Dagon has this habit of falling face down before the one true God. And it's worse now. His head and his hands have broken off. Now you need to remember, what was the standard practice back in the ancient world? What, was, what did you do in their day when you defeated an enemy? Well, you cut off their heads. This is what the Philistines will do to King Saul. It's what David will do to Goliath. The second thing you do is militarily, to count the defeated dead, you would often have your soldiers lop off the hands of the deceased enemy soldiers. So you get an accurate body count because your commanders would tend to inflate their numbers. You know, you fire one arrow and 400 casualties from the enemy, right? <laughs> and so so to, to bring me their hands. <laughs> That's usually a good... Guys don't usually surrender their hands. They're usually dead if they're missing a hand. So, you know, and if you want to double the count, well, how come they're all left hands? Okay, so you kept you honest in the ancient world. Friends, do you see in our story, the first day, Dagon bowed before the Lord, and the second day, he was executed in his own temple by the Lord. Now, the Hebrew is quite remarkable here. Uh, the last sentence in verse 4 is delightfully curious in the Hebrew. It literally reads, only Dagon remained on him. What is that saying? It's saying that no head, no hands, 
Only Dagon. And this is a powerful way of telling everybody who Dagon really was. Dagon could never think. He could never speak. He could never act. So you could chop off his head and hands and you have pretty much all the Dagon that you would ever get. But the Bible tells us in our 12 verses over and over again about another set of hands, doesn't it? The hand of the Lord was heavy. The hands of Dagon were missing. Just like Satan the imposter and deceiver, he will have his head crushed by Christ as promised in Genesis. So here, the supposed victor, Dagon's head, was crushed and lies broken at the threshold of his own temple. Now, if you walk up, to the temple of your God, and you discover his head and his hands are broken off, wouldn't you think something is fishy? (laughs) Particularly when all that's left... You guys are catching on. Good, 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 good. You're not out of shape. But friends, even though something seems very odd, something seems very fishy, the reality is no one is as blind as someone who refuses to see. What's right in front of them, they can't get away from it, the evidence is there, I'm not going to look at it. The Bible says Dagon's head and hands had been broken off. They were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Verse 5, And that is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod do what? Step on the threshold. Instead of saying, my God is no God at all. He's lying here in pieces. They say, my fallen idol has touched down here. This place of disgrace is now a holy place. This is the truth of Romans in the Old Testament. Romans tells us, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles, and therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and for the degrading of their bodies with one another. That the reality of Romans is seen in 1 Samuel 5. So, if verses 1 through 5 remind us that God is perfectly capable of defending his honor, then verses 6 through 12 take us to point three. Point three. Point three is this, God is perfectly capable of increasing his discipline until we begin to listen. God is perfectly capable of increasing his discipline until we begin to listen. Look at verse six. And the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, and he brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. And when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the other five Philistine cities. They asked them, what shall we do with the ark of Israel? It ain't staying here. That was the assumption. And and the other rulers said, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was heavy against that city, Gath. Throwing it, Gath, into a great panic. And he afflicted the people of Gath, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So at Ashdod, we saw devastation and tumors. Now, literally in the Hebrew, uh, the word is swellings. 
that we translate as tumors. And many surmise that this was perhaps the bubonic plague breaking out uh, because the Philistines returned the Ark of of God with five gold tumors and five gold, you know, rats. Where are the rats? But they're connecting somehow the plague with the plague of tumors as being connected to also a plague of rats. So, if you remember... um, Rats brought the bubonic plague via the fleas that were on the rats, and those plagues caused pronounced swellings, swellings of the lymph nodes on the body. There's a man named Giovanni Boccaccio. Apologies to my Italian friends. I don't know. I'm Irish. Giovanni Boccaccio described the Black Death in Florence in 1348 this way. He noted that the plague would reveal itself in the victims of the plague by the emergence of tumors. They would be in the groin or the armpits. We now know that's where the lymph nodes are. Some of which, he said, grew as large as an apple. Pretty big tumor. Now, other scholars hypothesize that, no, 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 what's happening here is is an outbreak of bacillary dysentery, which causes a painful condition called hemorrhoids. And in the Aramaic, that's how this is translated. Indeed, if you read the Hebrew... There's a footnote in the Hebrew Bible indicating that you might translate this as hemorrhoids. The old King James translated this as hemorrhoids. So if it were hemorrhoids, fun Sunday, isn't it? I don't pick, just (laughs) preach the Bible. Uh, So if it were hemorrhoids, then Dagon could not stand before the one true God, and Dagon's followers couldn't sit. Whatever the swelling... (laughs) The thing that is clear is that God is perfectly capable of increasing His discipline until people listen. At Ashdod, there was devastation, but now there's going to be death. At Ashdod, there was devastation, but there was no death. They saw the humiliation of Dagon in his own temple. They put two and two together. So they called the rulers of the other cities, and those rulers said, "Ah, this pestilence could just be coincidence, so send the ark to one of our other cities. Send it to Gath. Okay. Gath is the hometown of Goliath, later in Scripture. Gath is 12 miles away from Ashdod. But once the ark got to Gath, God increased his discipline until they began to listen. At Gath, both the young and the old, we are told, experienced this outbreak. Perhaps in Ashdod, it may have been relegated to just the most vulnerable but now it was universally available. Verse 10 says, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. It leaves Gath and goes to Ekron. What happens at Ekron? Well, as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark of the God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. And they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us. And our people. Hey friends, do you notice a pattern? (laughs) Once the ark rested, Ekron could not. For death had filled the city, verse 11. Panic! God's hand was heavy upon it. Verse 12, those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry went all the way up to heaven. Now, tumors are not the worst outcome, they're the best outcome. What's the worst outcome? Death, that's right. Death was the worst outcome, and those who did not succumb, perhaps they got a pain in their... So the city was filled with panic because it was clear God's hand 
very heavy upon it. The people of the sea, who looked to their adopted and adapted fishy god of grain, were in so much pain that the Bible says their cries went up to heaven. Friends, God so increased His discipline until even the pagans listened. And they cried out, not to Dagon, to Hebon. In chapter 6, these Philistines will try to make amends as best they understood so. And God in His great grace relented. And this whole sort of fear ended. And this brings us to point 4 today, lest we have a misunderstanding of our standing. The Philistines who looked to local gods, they learned point four today, the one true God is not limited to a location. The one true God is not limited to a location. If the ark was in their chief god's temple, Dagon would tremble and tumble. If the ark was in Ashdod, there was the heavy hand of God. First in tumors to the most susceptible. Perhaps a coincidence is reasonable, so they send it 12 miles away to Gath. But if the ark is in Gath, then the Lord's hand was heavy against that city. So that the outbreak grows from the susceptible to the young and old alike. Fit and healthy, infirm and elderly, rich and poor, all saw the need to send the ark out the door. And then verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. It's about six miles away. The closest city now to Israelite territory. You know what God is doing on a map? He's moving his ark back to his land. Bad guys are having to do all the lifting. It's just a story. It's a true story because we have a true God. But if the ark was in Ekron, God's hand was so very heavy that the city was filled with panic. And those who got just tumors, they got off easy. And many had to die until their outcry reached the one true God. And that brings us to our final point today, point five today. Point five in misunderstanding our standing is this. Number five, God will be glorified even in visiting judgment upon those who reject him. God will be glorified even in visiting judgment on those who reject him. You see, if the Philistines wanted to be dirty rats, <laughs> well then God gave them over to dirty rats. If they swelled with pride over their conquest, they began to swell with pain over their unholy treatment of God's holiness. If they thought they were the mighty harbingers of death with their trust in chariots, God was demonstrating it's far wiser to trust in the name of the Lord, and so he brought death on the warriors in their very fortresses. If the supposedly iron hand of the Philistines choked out the Hebrews, they soon learned that the heavy hand of the Lord could snuff out the Philistine. The Ark of God became a theological hot potato. Do you remember that game, hot potato? Okay. They could pass the parcel. That's what the British people call hot potato. I don't know if they don't have potatoes or what. But anyway, they would pass the parcel. And they could do that all they wanted. But you know, wherever they passed it, God was going to be there when it landed. Moving it around didn't move God away. Friends, God will be glorified even in visiting judgment upon those who reject Him. We see this in Genesis 18.25 when it says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? 
One day, the just judge will bring justice. And we're urged to seek mercy and forgiveness through Jesus now. Psalm 76 is true. It says, but you, O God, are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is aroused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. And when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Salah, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. My friends, God will be glorified even in visiting judgment upon those who reject Him. Psalm 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. So the question becomes, what have you, what have I done with King Jesus? One day, the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, which is why the Bible urges all men everywhere to repent, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, my friend, if the Lord has tossed you a hot potato and it's getting hard to hold, this thing is not getting softer and easier, it's burning and blistering, and you can ignore it, you can try to ignore it, but God is able to increase His discipline until you begin to. God, if He has tossed you a, a hot potato, you can try to run from it. But the Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro and no one can escape His gaze. If the Lord has tossed you a hot potato, you can try to pass it off. But one day you will run out of days until there is no more delay. Each of us will meet Jesus. That's a fact. You will meet Jesus and He will either be your advocate before the Father saying, this one is forgiven. I've paid for Sean through my blood. It's not Sean's righteousness that enters here. It's my righteous blood that gives him a boldness to come to the throne of grace. He can be your advocate. Or the Bible says, he will say this. Depart from me. I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say, depart from me, you were the worst person on earth, the worst sinner, you didn't go to church, you didn't give money, you didn't come to Sunday school, you didn't... He says, depart from me, I never knew you personally. Do you know Jesus personally? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Because if Jesus says, depart from me, Jesus tells us he'll send us where the worm never dies, and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't talk about that very much, but Jesus did. Maybe we should talk more like Jesus. The Old Testament tells us in Proverbs 28.13, he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. The New Testament tells us in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My friends, please don't leave here today misunderstanding. You're standing. Stand in Christ and you stand redeemed because the Bible says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But friends, if you reject Christ, and I want you to pay attention to Hebrews chapter 10 because it warns us if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, and that's referring to the gospel in that passage, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? 
For we know Him who said, It is mine to revenge. I will repay. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today and, and, and you realize that perhaps you've been misunderstanding your standing, and you want to leave the shifting sands of man, and instead you want to hide yourself in the rock of ages that was cleft for thee, you can let the blood of Christ be of sin the double cure. Christ is willing to cleanse you today. But nothing in your hand you can bring. Simply to the cross you must cling. Paul tells us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's never through our efforts. The Bible tells us God gives grace to the humble. So I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God that if you will humble yourself today, this Sunday, if you will bow to Christ, He was willing to make you a Christian, an adopted member of His family. He will be your forever Savior. And if you'd like to do that, you can pray with me right here, right now, in the quietness of your heart. It's not the words that save you, it's the desire of your heart. Word, your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And your word says there's no other than Jesus Christ. And so I put all of my faith in Jesus, and none of it in religion, or my good works, or anything else. And I give you my life. I'm asking for you not to just be my Savior, but my Lord. And that means you're my God. And that means you get to call the shots in my life. And so if I'm coming to you today, I pray that you would speak to me, that you'd put your spirit in me, that you'd seal me, guarantee me, but also speak to me and help me to be able to walk in newness of life. Rearrange the furniture in my life, pull out the rubbish, and put in the glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.